Hey, Kiko. Hi, Maddie. How are you? I'm good. Do you wear a watch? I do. Apple Watch. You do? An Apple Watch. So I, I uh, have never been a watch wearer and um, but want a watch because what I'm finding is that I've been using my phone to keep the time. And I have a hard time with technology because if I pick up my phone to look at the time and I have a text or an alert about the Yankee game or whatever, I get sucked into my, into my, uh, into my phone in a way that I don't want to, especially like if I'm teaching class and I'm just picking up my phone to like see how much time I've left for a lecture or something. So I actually asked for my birthday. I got just this old fashioned, you know, watch, which I love. It's love navy it. blue, my mm-hmm. favorite color. And, um, but I'm having this bizarre experience with it where I, I put it on and I, this about two weeks ago, I got it. I put it on and it, it keeps the time just fine. And then sometime in the afternoon, I look down and it's like an hour behind and I'm like, uh, okay. And it happened like two or three days in a row and I reset it. And I didn't know what was happening. So I reset it and, but it kept happening, kept happening. So I was like, okay, well, I, I got a broken watch for my birthday and I'm going to have to take it to a, a watch repair person. I mean, it's brand new, but no, you know, customer service right now. I can't get fossil is the brand of watches. I can't get anybody from fossil to return my calls or anything. So like I was going to go get it fixed. So I took it off and I left it on my nightstand for a couple of days. And when I picked it up to, to look at it, it kept the time. So it's only not working when I'm wearing it. So I don't know if I'm bumping it, but I did do a little research and there are certain people that because of the magnetic energy in their body, they can't wear a watch. I don't know if that's true, but it's something that came You are blowing my mind. I cannot believe this is a thing. What? I don't know if it's me. I'm going to continue the experiment, but I love this watch. I, I mean, it's, it's like, I mean, I picked it out and I just sent the link to my dad and he bought it for me. So it's like, of course I love it. But um, yeah, I mean, I love this watch. I want to wear this watch so that I don't get sucked into my phone at times, like in the middle of a production meeting or something, which continuously happens to me because I have so many balls in the air. But this watch won't keep time when it's on my wrist. That so, is absolutely insane. <laughs> I, <laughs> That's so weird. Wow. So I will report back. I'm going to continue to wear it and, and try to figure out when it's like falling behind or whatever. But but that is you asked how I was doing. And, and that's what's been going on with me the last the last week or so. What's been going on with you? You know, it's so funny. I mean, I just just for a second want to acknowledge this. I, I do, in fact, have an Apple Watch and it's great, um, but it does connect you to your phone a little bit. Right. So you, I do understand that. Um, the, the good thing that I've actually enjoyed about it, though, is um, closing your rings. For those of Apple people know, you know, it sort of keeps track of your fitness levels and sometimes tells you to stand, right? Like, we sit at these desks all day and it basically is like, okay, it's time for you to get up and, like, move around. So I do find, um, you know, while, yes, it does tether you to your phone, um, there are some really great benefits for everyone um to to to, um to have an apple watch the other thing is that it keeps you honest right so even though you're like yes i'm going to close my rings i'm going to get these exercise minutes um you know i could go on a walk for 60 minutes and it registers as like seven minutes because it's like (laughs) no 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 sir you did not 
you know, put the effort, um, you know, it looks at your heart rate and, and all those things. But um, I don't know. I just, just as we're talking about It doesn't watches, count when you... Yeah, it doesn't when count you when you stop under a it. tree and read a book. It doesn't count that. Correct. That is correct. <laughs> it just knows. It knows. Amazing. That um, you are not putting in the effort that you think you might be. Um, and I, you know, it it has made a difference. It has made it makes a difference when um, an external source is saying stand up because mm. that is completely um, objective, right or subjective? Which one? Objective. I know, whatever. <laughs> We're, we teach theater. We teach musical theater. I know, but it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting, interesting thing. Get a watch Jamie, is today's message. Jamie, my, Jamie, my partner, has a, 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 an Apple Watch and has loved it. I see the value in it. I, I just, the way my brain works is like I go all into whatever I'm doing and the rest of the world disappears. So uh, I have a very hard time shifting gears, just like in life. Uh, if I'm if I'm having this with you and and you know my kids run by it's and it takes me out of it it's very hard for me to like reboot so you know I just know about myself that if I had an Apple Watch and I saw you know I got an alert from you know Jamie texts me in the middle of a production meeting I'm gonna get sucked in and respond or what it's just very difficult for me so I'm trying this old fashioned watch thing but apparently it's possible that I have such magnetism that it is impossible for me to wear a watch with a hand on it. So we'll, we'll see. So for those we'll of you see. that are listening to this podcast, I am shaking my head and rolling my eyes. The, <laughs> an opportunity <laughs> for you to discuss your magnetism, Maddie. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, and is, that's the, uh, that's the focus of today's podcast. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Actually, we, go ahead. I was just going to say, we can pivot to somebody that is absolutely magnetic and is a yeah. true force in uh, the, the, theater industry and and we were so excited to talk about yeah so uh today's guest um on carefully taught is kalia davis and she is a, a real trailblazer in uh in the world of musical theater particularly in tya theater for young audiences which is a different kind of musical theater educator so far our focus has been on the university landscape because it's the it's the world that you and I live in, but uh, she's a very different kind of educator and an exciting one. I mean, she is, she is really phenomenal. I, I can't wait for our, our listeners to hear this interview. Uh, she says so many important, incredible things. She's inspiring. I, what do you, I mean, what was your takeaway? Was you... I, um, you know, one thing that I think is important as we are educating young people um that, that there are so many options and that um as a first job out of college or a first job you know in general um the world of theater for young audiences tya um is an amazing place to start a performing career um not only are you a part of something that could be um educational but but really this is entertainment this is an, an opportunity to connect with um young people and for them the thing i love about it is um that that tya is really the point of entry for a lot of young audiences so even our own students that we have now um the, the first show they saw perhaps as a kid was something that would be considered um in this space 
Yeah, and we talk a little bit about this in the interview, but it is a forgotten part of the musical theater industry that many of our programs don't focus on, don't uh, don't have classes or produce shows uh, that fit in that category. And um, so anyway, y'all are going to love her. She's absolutely the best. So buckle up and uh, excited to introduce you to Kalia Dave. The Betty and Kiko Podcast Show. The Betty and Kiko Show. The Betty and Kiko Podcast Show. Kalia, we are so excited to have this conversation with you. Welcome to Carefully Taught, teaching musical theater with Maddie and Kikau. So one of the interesting things about our podcast is we're talking about musical theater education from every angle we can possibly look at it from. And so far, our focus has really been on the university experience, because that's the world that Kikau and I are currently working in. But you you teach in a very different way. Obviously. You teach stuff uh, like classes for kids. You're currently uh, a, a part-time lecturer at California State University, Chico. Wink, wink. But you're also the artistic director of the Bay Area Children's Theater. Is that what, that's what it's called, right? And I think that theater for young audiences, and Kiko can speak to this too because of his experience in Virginia, I think that that is such an important part of musical theater and theater education, because for so many young people, going and seeing uh, a show that was produced specifically for them, that's how they meet theater. That's how, that's the, that's their bridge into the world. And so, you know, you're teaching students that, that are coming to, kids that are coming to see your show and inspiring them both through the art and just by, with the art itself. So I, I think that that's such an exciting conversation to have. Kikau, I just totally, like, took over there. Do you? <laughs> no, 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 that's so great. Why don't you, um, Kalia, why don't you tell us um, why uh, musical theater and, and why, why TYA specifically for you? Definitely. Hey. Uh, so I actually am definitely a full product of what it's like to have been invited into this space as a young person to create a musical and then appreciate that experience so much, find my people, as they say, and then want to do that for other kids. So I took summer camp, and it was always a theater-themed camp, because when I was really little, I said that I wanted to be an actor, years old, and I actually started with um, TV and film acting, but they don't really have TV and film acting camp, they have theater camp, and my mom was smart enough to put me in one when I was really little. And she recognized that I got excited about the liveness of performing on stage in front of an audience. I had a funny line and I had a silly accent and everyone laughed in real time because I was a kid on TV. So it was like canned laughter or I would do the take and nothing would happen. So it was the first time that me at 11 years old was experiencing actual response in real time to something that I was doing on stage just a character and I was like this is amazing so I kept doing it and I got to a place where I was 13 years old and I guess I was very good at being a camper and then the camp director came to my mom and said would she be interested in instead of being a camper next session could she be an assistant for me and help with my six nine-year-old kid learn these numbers from guys and dolls 
And that just did it for me. I was like, oh, I get to now take something that I really love and give it to uh, these little kids and get them excited about this thing that I really love. And that is carried into my profession today, where now I get to create worlds and musicals and work for kids, hoping that they will see it as an opportunity to maybe do it themselves, um, a, a chance to escape into another world for them, um, or just to make them feel like really good in the moment. Musicals are really fun. I mean, the whole point is that at a certain point, you can't speak your feelings. You have to sing, and then it gets so intense that then you may need to do a big dance number as well. So just that heightened reality is really fun. I think for young people to get absorbed in, they're still at an age where their imaginations are so wide and vast that they can accept the reality of that situation, even though you're like, how would every single person in this town know the same choreography and harmonize with this one character who's having just like a dream about Lacey. How is that happening? But yeah, that, I think that would probably be my journey of why musical theater, especially for young kids, is so important to me. So I, uh, I alluded to this in, in your introduction, but I'm wondering if you could speak to it since you are the expert and the guest, and it's not all about me, Maddie. Uh, what in what ways do you do you see theater for young audiences as a teaching opportunity? Like, what what is it that you aspire to do when uh, directing and producing TYA? So, theater for young audience traditionally is the model where adult actors are performing for young audiences. So that's kids, families, sometimes it's very young, so under five years old, baby theater. But typically on stage you'll have adult professional actors. And there's something very special about seeing adults embodying in most cases young people. And as a young person, you're seeing somebody who you potentially see yourself in. There's a mirrored reflection that can happen. Um, there's also an appreciation that happens where you as a child can sit there and be like, yeah, you do understand what I'm going through because this character that you're portraying right now, that's me. You know, there's mm-hmm. shows that I've done where these adults are playing fourth graders and they are singing about what it's like feel overworked, um, what it feels like to not be perfect yet, to not have all the right answers yet. It's really hard to be a kid. And then you talk to the students after after they've seen the show and they're like, yeah, no, I really like that character because I also don't know what I want to do yet. Or like mm-hmm. they find something that connects them. And that tends to happen in my mind more often when it is a show that is geared towards young audiences as opposed to kids going to see a show that may be more for adults. Phantom of the Opera is a beautiful show with beautiful music and gorgeous costumes and sets. Like the spectacle is amazing. But the storyline is not for kids. So a kid sitting in an audience may appreciate the beautiful artistry that's happening in front of them, but I don't know if they necessarily are finding a connection with the story or the characters themselves in the same way that they might when it is a story about kids going on an adventure and they're having to fight some monster. And I'm just thinking about when we have had TYA shows on a bigger 
stage like the lightning thief on broadway like there's a reason why this show was so popular and so championed by their the kids that were watching it and with like be more chill on broadway same thing these kids were excited because they finally saw themselves on a bigger stage um and regional theaters and small community theaters are able to do that for the particular community that they're serving as well, which I think is really lovely. So this is a little bit of a leading question, but it seems to me that you, you discuss professional actors performing for kids in TYA and theater for young audiences. Um, but it seems to me like that's a missing component from a lot, maybe most, BFA musical theater training programs. I'm wondering if if that has been your experience and and uh, if you could speak to that. Sure. So, and Kika probably knows this well, being in immersed in theater for young audience. That term is still actually relatively new. There, the history of children's theater is that there was a time when it was considered less than. Um, hokey, corny, um, pandering. So a whole group of individuals wanted to distance themselves from that um, aspect of it. And so they coined this term theater for young audience in hopes that it would change the way in which people view that type of work. Fortunately, there's still this sense that TYA shows and that type of work is not at the same caliber and prestige as maybe someone who is performing in a Shakespeare piece or a contemporary adult theater piece. So when you think training centers or training programs for future professional theater makers, many times the departments are putting together resources and curriculum that is going to hopefully help them be successful in these larger markets and not necessarily thinking about the importance of also what it means to perform for a younger version of yourself, Um, getting back into the community. Oftentimes, you notice that these Lort theaters will have a separate department that is geared towards community engagement, and that usually tends to be where you see the TYA or Theater for Young Audience type of program. I'm thinking of um, the public in New York City. They have this mobile unit that goes out into different types of communities and they perform Shakespeare, but they perform it in an accessible way for that community that may not be used to or know Shakespeare or that language. They break it down and they create shows that bring them in that conversation, which is basically what TYA does, but you don't experience it until you get into the real world. Now there are a couple of MFA programs that now exist But when you think BFAs and BA programs that are theater in the classes that you're taking, there really are not any true classes or any track that is getting people ready to be a part of the TYA world or industry. And the interesting thing then is that they end up, um, you know, going into TYA anyways. It ends up being their first jobs, right? So there really does need to be a connection to that industry because so many of my students, you know, the first thing right out of college is a, is a children's tour or perhaps, um, uh, you know, auditioning for something that is 
geared towards a younger audience and and we i don't think we've prepared them so it's just it's a fascinating conversation well also it's because they are still close enough in age to the audience they're performing for so we want to grab students who are 20 21 22 especially those that are made to look younger. like i was born looking little like i still look very young been looking young when I was teaching in high school I would have to wear heels I would have to like make sure people understood like I am not a student because I got stopped all the time when I taught at this high school in Brooklyn for years and the but the thing is is that we want those students who just graduated because usually doing a show where they have to embody children and they're they're still agile enough to be able to embody that, not to discredit anyone in my age bracket or older who are youthful spirit, like I could still do it, but it's gonna probably take a little bit more of a leap of the imagination than it would someone who's 10 years or 15 years younger than me. So I, could I ask, I, this idea that TYA, that people still see TYA as, as less than, uh, is so, frustrating to me. Uh, and so I, there's two things I wanted to say about it. First of all, I was lucky enough, I got my MFA at University of North Carolina, Greensboro in directing. And that's one of the handful of MFA programs that they, there is a TYA MFA. And um, I traveled it through, through my time in, in grad school. I traveled with the TYA directors through, through all of our classes, basically. I mean, with the same education, we just had slightly different focuses. And you know, in my whole time at UNCG, the most moving theater experiences, my two favorite moving theater experiences were from the TYA directors. Lexi Scamahorn did an incredible production that, like, to this day I think about and, and am inspired by in, in our first, it's spring of our first, first year. So I think the idea that it's less than is so ridiculous because it's not just inspiring to the to the kids that go and see these things, but it's also inspiring to the parents or the the, the audience that that aren't kids, but but still want to be in touch with with the kids at hearts. I mean, that's I mean, there, there are people that crave that. Like Kikau and I just we went to he went to Disney World and I went to Disneyland on the same day a couple of weeks ago because you know we're the types of people that crave that. But the other thing that I struggle with is this: whether or not it's less than. When you're a professional actor, a paycheck's a paycheck, y'all. And so whether it's an equity contract or a non-equity contract, if you're getting paid to do theater, it shouldn't matter if it's, you know, company or or Sweeney Todd or If Only the Lonely Were Home, which is the incredible uh, TYA production that Lexi did in, in grad school. So I just I really struggle with that, and I I'd love to see more of the BFA musical theater trainers uh, in our in our circle adopt some of some of these productions as part of their training experience. Speak out. Yeah. So uh, what this is maybe a little bit of a pivot. Um, what is your your goal or your responsibility as an artistic leader? Yes. So as you said earlier, I'm the artistic director of Bay Area Children's Theater. Um, This position is a relatively new position because my mentor is Nina Meehan, who founded the company. So she embodied both the executive and artistic 
direction for the whole company. So this is pretty fun for me to come in and like play with the programming a bit more. She can focus more about being the CEO and just like strategic planning of the organization, which is very great. She knows everything. Um, something that I recognized once I was put into the position of leadership that I had not necessarily had before is the power of the voice. I recognize now that I have always had a strong say and judgment call when it came to the types of work I want to produce, direct, create. But I was in situations and in places of lower status where my voice was not necessarily uplifted or amplified in those places. Now I have an entire team that's behind me. And so I feel like my artistic responsibility is to create work that mirrors that for a young person. When they come into the theater and they see a show, they should be educated by the show for whatever reason we want to educate them, whatever that is. They should be entertained by what's happening. Like They should enjoy themselves in the space. And they also should feel empowered by what they're seeing because hopefully every message that we're leaving the child with is that you can either do this too. So whatever you just witnessed and saw, you can go out in the playground and you can reenact that. Or this is a cultural story that relates to you yourself. You're seeing someone that looks like you, that speaks like you, that's living and walking in your experience. So you now feel empowered. That person became an astronaut by the end of the show. I can be an astronaut by the end of the show. Um, it could be that person does not look like me. That person has nothing to do with my lived experience, but I saw the struggle that they went through to be accepted, and now they are a Supreme Court justice. I want to defend people like this person. I'm going to go. So I want to create work that is going to educate, entertain, and empower my young people as they are watching it. And then the final thing is showing parents and caregivers and grown-ups that conversations you may think are difficult for a young person to grapple with or understand, actually is produced in, a, in an accessible way that a young person can participate in it because we have now given them tools and language to use. You can have those conversations. And theater sometimes can be the vehicle. Art can be the vehicle for some of the more difficult conversations because they've broken it down into really simple proponents or aspects that a kid can be able to talk about. You're so inspiring, Kalia. I just adore you. The, uh, I, there's a couple of projects in particular, <laughs> there's a couple of projects in particular that I want to follow up on because they were really major in, in the TYA landscape. Uh, I'd love to talk, I'd love to hear you talk about She Persisted and your experience with that. Uh, but then I've got to follow up to that one too. So t could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yes, so She Persisted the Musical is based off of the book by Chelsea Clinton, She Persisted. I got to work with Adam Tobin, who is our book and lyricist writer, and Deborah Wix-Lapuma, the famous TYA composer. She is uh, a queen. And it was produced originally with Bay Area Children's Theater, and I got to serve as director. And that process was really interesting because we are bringing to life a work by a notable entity who also was very, like, she participated in the entire process. So Chelsea Clinton was so lovely. She would give notes. She would 
send feedback. She actually named our main character for us. Um, it's based her the main character's name is Naomi, who is based off of a young black girl who spoke at uh, a gun legislation march, so March all and she's only 11 years old and she talked about the importance of being able to go to school without fear of a school shooting and wanting to still grow up in a place where she can go to school and be educated opposed to in fear for her life and that was pretty great to have that tether immediately to our main character um the process for this was really exciting for me because it also meant that I could be a part of the development process at the beginning. Um, it also solidified my love of new work. I like bringing to life new pieces because that means that we get to add our own sugar and spice to it as it's being cooked. Uh, and as a director, I was very aware that my position was just to make sure that the story was something that of the kids who were watching the audience is able to track. So there were times in which I was able to speak to Adam and Debbie and say, you know what, right now it feels like our main character, there's nothing for her to achieve yet. She has a problem, but this problem seems pretty stagnant. I think that there could be level that she's working towards. Why does she keep having to be met with these six women who did extraordinary things? She's needing them at the at the cusp of that extraordinary thing. Why is it important that this child is getting to meet these historically known entities before they become famous? And we recognize the power of the fact that everybody starts in the same place. And then through trials and tribulations and recognizing a need, they went and they did something about it. They didn't just sit around and wait for someone else. And there's a lot of power in that message. So it's just very exciting to be able to be a part of a process from the beginning to see it grow. And then also, you know, Loki was cool to uh, know Chelsea Clinton. Uh, <laughs> she, I consider her a friend. She's lovely. I've met her parents. Um, and also it's been really fun to be able to see the show continue to grow and live and journey on into other community spaces. I worked for the Atlantic Theater Company. Um, when I lived in New York, and they did a production of it, and I served as their cultural dramaturg, because in the show, there are majority women of color, and there's only one actor who identifies as white, and I wanted to make sure that while they had a majority white production team, that there was someone in the space that could speak to and be there for and create a safe space for the actresses who are embodying these characters of color who are having to relive that trauma historically. Um, specifically, we have Ruby Bridges, who is a part of the piece. And in the show, I was very proud of Adam for maintaining the reality of a six-year-old child trying to go to school when they have adults yelling and barking and saying horribly mean and nasty things to a child. But we wanted to make sure the audience actually really felt that. But I was there to, to speak on behalf of the actor and be like, let's check in with you. Are you ready yet to hear those words? Are you in a place yet to be able to embody this character in this rehearsal? Do we need some more time? Do we want to talk through it? Because to put your, to ask an actress to embody something that they've never themselves experienced, but because culturally they are tied to that lived experience, I just wanted to make sure that she felt 
ready to embrace it. Um, so I just think that that's also something very special to me about She Persisted is that not only are we celebrating incredible women who did amazing things for this country, but also we are illuminating women of color who specifically did some really amazing things. And therefore, actresses of color get an opportunity to perform these roles and do some pretty cool. I think the the story that you just told about your role in the Atlantic production is such a important and invaluable and valuable lesson for our listeners as many of us continue to uh, direct different kinds of productions. I, I mean, that's such a such a sensitive way to 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 work on that. I'm, I'm curious who's Whose idea was that sh- the adaptation? Was it because it, it originated at Bay Area Children's Theater? You were the original director. You had all these incredible people working on it. But who came up with the idea? Hey, this should be a musical. Because I got to be honest, I read that I read that book to my three year old, and I don't inherently think, oh, they should sing and dance. Um, so who who came up with that? Debbie and Adam. So Adam and Debbie went to Stanford University together, and so they have a um, friendship that has spanned many years. And Adam worked in television, specifically in children's television, worked at Nickelodeon, and now he works at Stanford as a screenwriter professor. And the two of them actually brought it to Nina and said, we'd like to turn this into a musical. So they were the ones they were able to hear because Adam, just like you, Maddie, read the book to his daughter and was like, oh, this is powerful. I want to see this brought to life on stage. And also understands the exciting opportunity that a musical can give you. So that's why they use that as the vehicle. Yeah. I got to ask about one more project, and I, I uh, but it's a, a play, a kids' play about racism, um, which was like a major, major event in the TYA landscape. Um, many of our listeners probably don't know about it because they're stuck in their university bubbles like like Kikau and I, but could you speak a little bit about that that production, how it came about, and what your role was in it? Yes. So A Kid's Play About Racism is adapted from Jelani Memory's book, A Kid's Book About Racism, which is actually a book that he initially wrote for his son to help him see his lineage and his story, um, because they both share the fact that they are multiracial people that identify though as black and they walk in the world first black and so wanted to write a story that his little boy could read first of all um and understand and kept very simple the whole mission of a kid's book about is one that i believe in strongly which is you can have these difficult conversations but you put it in the lens that the kid can understand and it actually simplifies it to a place where even adults are like, oh yeah, it is that simple. Wow. So uh, it is a reaction to the injustice um, of 2020, where we had back-to-back murders of Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, uh, the attempted murder of Jake Blake, and of course George Floyd, who ignited um, and inspired higher movement to be reignited. The Black Lives Matter movement had already been in the process, but it just, I felt, amplified in, in a good way. And we wanted to do something as a QA industry. We wanted to say, we are a part of this movement. We see the importance of this, but we also are artists and we make art. So what is the type of art that we want to make? And again, I will give credit to Nina Meehan, 
who was the one who initially came to me and said, I read this book, and I think it's good, and I want you to adapt it. I want you to direct it, and I don't want anybody else to be a part of the process and the decision-making. I want it to be fully Black people. So I was able to put together a team of BIPOC artists, Black, Indigenous, people of color, and we were a, and creatives. And the thing that really set it off and something that was pretty legendary is that we had over 40 producing TYA theaters sign on to make this happen. And they produced it in many different ways. Some were financial producers. Some used our show as a resource, their own community. Um, others gave us actors <laughs> and staff for the piece. Um, and then I was able to work with the Alliance Theater and with Seattle Children's Theater and their education department to create what TYA is very much known for, which is what's called the wraparound. So you have the show but you also provide the audience resources and study guides, lesson plans, and activities that um, are around what the show's theme is, story, character, so that kids can engage with it even after the show's done or before the show begins, so they have a better understanding walking into seeing the work. Something else that was pretty revolutionary is we did during the pandemic, which meant that we couldn't meet in person. Uh, <laughs> so this was really cool because it allowed me, as someone who started in TV and film, had always loved children's programming and children's entertainment in every medium. I was able to flex this ability to marry theatrical storytelling in a film medium. So it was one of the first cross-pollination projects to come onto the scene for theaters. So I think not only were we able to create a show that was resonating with young people and was broadcast through Broadway On Demand, we were one of their first shows on Broadway On Demand. It got extended past the weekend, so it got extended for seven days because it was so popular. And then we've also provided it to educators. So for the full year, um, last year, this past year, we had a free opportunity. So if you were an educator, you could sign up. You got the study guide and activity guide that you could use or not. And then you also got access to the 30-minute show that was created on Zoom and filmed in a, a more cinematic way and then edited and animated together to create the show that people were able to witness and see. This is so great. You really are, really are amazing. Um, uh, as a, a musical theater leader and educator and director, um, what is something that you do that nobody else does? What's something that is like, has your copyright or stamp on it? And it could, it could literally be anything. Wow. Okay. So many times I have noticed that because I'm an actor first and acted in children's theater, I have an innate sense of what the actor needs at any given time during the rehearsal process. And I've noticed that I will end rehearsals early if I feel like, eh, you've gotten it. Um, I will start rehearsals late. If we need to have a, a, like a, a calming circle time where 
the actors are able to just express themselves. This isn't my thing. I learned this, but it is something that I have brought into every space that I have occupied, which is access check-ins. I believe wholeheartedly in coming to my artists as humans first. And I want to set the precedent from the very beginning that they can come into the space as their true authentic self. And if that means that they were up all night because of whatever reason, and they didn't memorize their lines, or it's been really difficult for them, or they had a death in the family, or as we were experiencing during 2020, all of the deaths and the murders and the protesting and just the piling on the election. I mean, there's just so much that was happening, and I was still directing during that time. I just always wanted to make sure that I was checking in with their well-being first. Again, I don't know if I can say that's just me, because I I learned that from a training a long time ago with New York City Children's Theater with um, facilitators that came into the space. I was really moved by an access check-in, but it is something that I in, um, I inherited it and I brought it to Bayer Children's Theater. We do that now as a staff. It is part of our ritual. Um, I do that with every cast that I work with, every class that I'm teaching. We just always start with an access check-in I just care so deeply about the well-being holistically of the artist because the art will happen. You're talented, we're skilled, we got this. But what do you need to get off your chest? What do you need to process first in order to make the art happen? I don't want to. I don't want to ignore that part of it. Yeah, will this just to give a little bit of an example? Um, do you just start with? checking in with all do you sort of go one by one what does an access check-in look like in regards to a rehearsal process sure so i will usually model um the first time um when i say access check-in you can say all my access needs have been met which i think has been really great for individuals who might be a bit more shy or um reserved and not want to share all of it so they can just say my access needs to be met they move on um something that i love is popcorning or passing because i don't want to always be the one that's like matt you go kiko you go it's like i will go and it's like i'm gonna pass it to and then because i said that phrase everybody knows that they will now need to pass it to somebody else an access check-in could be physical like ooh, i sprained my ankle yesterday going up the stairs i will not be able to do any dance choreography today it could be emotional um like i used examples earlier it could be spiritual uh, and emotional it could be something that is taking space in their brain that might impact how they show up in the space as an actor at rehearsal and if i know at the beginning of rehearsal where everybody is I know how to come to them in that time. So I won't be uh, put off if someone is stumbling on their lines or their blocking because I had already heard from them that they had to buy a ticket last minute to go to see their ailing grandma before she passed on. And so their brain is in that fog. I will give them a pass. Um, and hopefully what that does is it allows them to feel comfortable and brave and safe in my space and all of us to be able to embrace them as true ensemble members and community members uh, right at the beginning. That's fantastic. You are such an inspiration. You really are. And, and it's funny because uh, we've had so many Zoom meetings now. I feel like world friends, but we haven't actually met in person. <laughs> Man, 
the last year and a half has been weird, y'all. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. You're the best. Um, so we end every episode with uh, a recommended resource for our listeners. Uh, something, uh, a book, a podcast, a, a, a movie, I mean, anything that could, an organization that could enhance our listeners' uh, teaching experience. Um, what is your recommended resource for our listeners? As you know, teaching artistry, to be a teaching artist, is not necessarily something that you are taught. Um, it is something you kind of fall into. Even in those MFA programs, it's interesting to learn that that is kind of the, the pedagogy around it. Because you're like, well, I just kind of became a teaching artist because I didn't want to be a full-time curriculum-based teacher at a school. I wanted the flexibility. So it's interesting when you say, like, what are resources for educators teaching artistry? Because I'm like, ooh, not too many. But I will recommend two things. Um, just for your own education pedagogy to help in your dismantling and decolonization, as well as your work in anti-racism and anti-teaching practices, Woke Kindergarten is an amazing resource. You can follow Woke Kindergarten on Instagram at Woke Kindergarten. Um, they provide so many awesome opportunities and resources. The other one that I would suggest, and actually someone that maybe you should have on your show, is Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. I was a guest on her podcast many months ago, and that podcast, she does reach out to teaching artists, um, directors, people who are working in the theater industry that are specifically um, on the pathway of education. And it's a wide range of individuals, a wide range of um, theology and, and experience when it comes to the art of teaching, um, specifically teaching theater to kids, teaching theater to adults, college. So that's a podcast, Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. She works for the New Victory Theater in New York. Um, she's amazing. So yeah, if you want to have another guest, she's great. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I love, uh, Maddie, that you have not actually met Kalia, because Kalia and I met earlier this year in Texas. Yeah. Uh, we both were adjudicators, hey, uh, both adjudicators for the Junior Theater Festival that was in Texas. And so I have had the privilege at this point to, to meet you, of course, and to watch you work and just get up and, you know, your, everything out of your mouth so inspiring to these young people. And, and even at the idea of you being a guest on this show, I was like, absolutely, this has to happen. So I'm so glad we were able to make it work. Yay. Um, thank you so much. This is so great. And, and I, um, I'm excited for, for people to be able to um, hear you uh, speak and to connect with you. Um, is there a way that you um, prefer people reach out if they have questions or, or is there... Yeah, anyone with another new work idea, should they just knock on your door? <laughs> I always love hearing about new stuff happening. So you can follow me on Instagram at Kalia SHD. That's K-H-A-L-I-A-S-H-D. Feel free to send me a DM. Um, you also could find me on my website. It's just my name, KaliaDavis.com. <laughs> and you can contact me. I get all those contact submissions. So yeah, let's chat. Let's have a good time. Perfect. Thank you.
Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been uh, such a great conversation and some questions that I have been wanting to ask you, but saving for this podcast. So thank you for telling us about all those really exciting projects. You really are an inspiration and, and we are lucky to be able to share you with our listeners. Music for Carefully Taught was provided by Joshua Haig. For more information, visit joshuahaigmusic.com.